listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. I'd like to start today with a question. What do you think about when you hear the word leader or leadership? Perhaps you think about a particular leader in your life, someone who helped you excel or someone that brought great success to the organization you were with. Or maybe you think about yourself. You're a leader. And when you hear the term leadership, you think about the responsibility that you have to see that your organization succeeds or that the people that work for you flourish. Leadership is a hot topic. There are lots of books that are on it. People go to conferences. There are degrees that you can get in leadership, master's degrees, and even doctorate degrees in leadership. And of course, there are lots of different leadership styles. There are some that are loud in your face, like the college uh, basketball coach, Bobby Knight. Some are more mild-mannered and soft-spoken, like the NFL football coach, Tody Dungy. Of course, that's just a matter of style of leadership. But typically, we measure leadership by its effectiveness. How well does the leader succeed and how well does the organization succeed? But of course, effectiveness is not the only thing that measures leadership. The ends do not justify the means often, uh, despite what Machiavellian uh, prince might teach us. There are ethics to leadership. Things, there are ways that things should be done. There are sometimes that the cost of success is too much, that people do matter. And it's also um, issues of sustainability. Just because a leader can leverage all the resources of an organization and make it look successful in the short run, is that success sustainable? So there are lots of ways that we might measure leadership, and I think that, that's a good one. Not just how well does an organization do while the leader is in charge, but what type of organization does that leader leave for those who follow in his or her footsteps? How well can it succeed in the future? I think that's an important measurement too. A number of years ago, Eugene Peterson was asked to speak on leadership, and he decided to talk about Jesus, and he titled his three-part series, Follow the Leader. We're going to do something very similar. We're starting a series today called Follow the Leader, and like Peterson, we're going to compare Jesus with a number of biblical characters, some of the same ones that he chose, and then also some different ones. Today, we're going to look at Pharaoh. Next week, we're going to look at Herod. And then Chris Green is going to speak to us the week after that and look at Pilate. And then I'll close the series as we look at Caiaphas, who was the high priest during the time of Jesus. But today, we'll start with Pharaoh. One of the things I love about the Bible is that its historical references are sometimes ambiguous. And that ambiguity frees us from some particularity that we might sometimes feel. For a long time in professional biblical studies, people actually weren't interested in the text itself, but in the history behind the text. They used the Bible almost as a window to look into the past, and so that they were only interested in the past events and not necessarily in the window. But I believe that Scripture is inspired, 
and that it's not just useful into looking into the past, but it's an important story and that we should pay attention to it as a story. Hans Frey wrote a book called The Eclipse of the Biblical Narrative. Now, I wouldn't recommend it to you. It's a very kind of dense academic work, but he made a very important point, and that is that scripture is a story. It tells a story. It has characters. It has protagonists and antagonists. It has some plot and some plot development and character development, and it kind of, it goes somewhere. And so if we ask this question, kind of the narrative or literary question, we can see a lot that we can learn about leadership, particularly as we look at Pharaoh, and we contrast him to the Hebrew prophets and then to Jesus. So Pharaoh is first introduced to in our story in Genesis chapter 12, and he is an antagonist in that story where, where our hero is Abraham. By the time we get to the end of Genesis, we, we see Pharaoh again, and this time our main character is Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham. Now again, just a quick aside, historically those would not have been the same people, but in the narrative, since it never actually names who the Pharaoh is, Pharaoh kind of plays this larger-than-life role. He's, he's more than just a particular person. Pharaoh in the story is a symbol, a symbol for kind of an anti-God way of being in the world. So this story at the end of Genesis goes something like this. Pharaoh, who is the most successful leader in the world, He's in charge of Egypt, the wealthiest country, the largest economy, the largest military. They also have a very rich culture full of art and architecture and literature. I mean, Pharaoh was the leader of the world at the time, but he had this dream. And in his dream, he saw these seven fat cows kind of come up out of the Nile and graze in the pasture. And then he saw seven more cows, scrawny ones, kind of come up out of the Nile, and they ate the fat cows. So he startles awake. That's, that's like a nightmare, not a dream. And it's Joseph, again, the grandson of, of Abraham, who interprets the dream for him. And he says, Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of plenty. I mean, things are going to roll really good for you. But then there's going to be seven years of famine. And it is striking the... Uh, response that Pharaoh has. Again, this is the singular, wealthiest, most powerful person in the world. And he hears about a famine, and it creates anxiety in him. This is interesting. When people who have much, sometimes they fear losing it, they can, they can be extra anxious he, he has anxiety, and his anxiety leads him to the fear of scarcity. And that scarcity leads him, or the fear thereof, leads him to kind of work with Joseph to make a plan. Like, how are they going to respond to this famine? So their response to the famine is that they're going to gather grain from everyone every year kind of like a tax, and they're going to store it in these big storehouses. And after the seven years of plenty, they should have enough to last through the seven years of famine. It sounds like a great plan, but there's a very dark twist. 
The first year of the famine, they've collected all of this grain. It's all stored up in the storehouses. The people come and said, hey, we need some grain. It's a famine. And Joseph, who is complicit in this story, says, well, what, do you, what will you give me for it? Well, it was their grain. The people had, had been given their grain every year, but they had to give money for it. They said, well, we have some money. And Joseph says, okay. They give money. They get some grain. A year goes by. The famine's still in place. And they come back to Joseph and they say, hey, we need, we need more grain. And he says, well, I'll take more money. And they well, we don't have money. We're out. We gave it to you last year. And so he says, what do you have? And they have some livestock, so they give that. The following year they come. Now they have no money. They have no livestock. So the only thing they have to exchange for the grain is the land that they live on. So they give up their land. Then the fourth year, they come back with no money, no livestock, and no land. And all they have left is their own lives. So they give their own lives over to be slaves of Pharaoh. And that's how this story ends. Genesis comes to an end with the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham, living as slaves. And they will live as slaves for the next 400 years until Moses comes on the scene in the book of Exodus. So let's review a bit this this kind of um, leadership style of Pharaoh. I'm leaning here on some teaching of Walter Brueggemann. But Pharaoh starts with this kind of anxiety that leads to his uh, scarcity, which I think is a myth that we still deal a lot with today. Um, There's a myth of scarcity that tells us that we can never afford these programs that are around, and so we, we better just kind of keep what we have. Scarcity and belief in scarcity leads to accumulation. But for Pharaoh, with Joseph's help, that accumulation leads to monopoly. He's the only one who owns anything. And monopoly, as it often does, leads to violence. In their case, it was slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's the way that Pharaoh operates in in this world from a spectrum to anxiety, all the way to violence. But there's another story that's told throughout the Torah and and the prophetic books. And it's the story of the prophets. The Bible uses the term prophet to refer to all of the kind of primary characters, often the heroes of the story. Abraham is called a prophet. Moses is like the prophet. We're told later that another will come like Moses. But then we see Nathan and Samuel serve as prophets to uh, David and to Saul. And then we get other prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And of course, the prophets that write so much like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But the prophets tell a different story. The prophets don't tell a story of anxiety and scarcity, but a story of trust and abundance. And that's the way that God would have leaders be of the people of God. So in the book of Deuteronomy, while they're still kind of wandering in the wilderness, there's this message. It's Deuteronomy chapter 17. It says, when you come into the land, you're going to want a king. But when you want a king, there's a certain way that king should behave. And we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 17 what the requirements for a godly king would be like. Let's listen to those. 
This is Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. One of your own community you may set as king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return to the people of Egypt in order to acquire more horses, since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he must not acquire many wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Also silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. And when he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall remain with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing all the words of this law and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. So it's not surprising that the king is to be godly, uh, we can see later in the biblical story in Chronicles, as the story is retold of all the kings of Israel and all the kings of Judah, it's quite obvious who's telling that story in Chronicles. It must have been the priest, because the difference between the good kings, and there was only a handful of them, according to Chronicles, and all the other kings, is that the ones who are considered to be good are considered to be godly. The ones who kind of lived like the king should have lived, according to Deuteronomy 17, and who kind of turned the people back toward God. And again, there weren't many of them. There were plenty of kings who were successful, and successful like Pharaoh. Manasseh and Omri are kings of, of, of Judah and Israel, and they, um, they had success. They had economic success. They had military success. They had cultural success but they were ungodly and they kind of abused the, the common people and as such are later deemed unsuccessful according to, uh, according to Chronicles. But what we see in particular, coming back to Deuteronomy, there are three things that I wanted to highlight for you. There were things that the godly king was not to accumulate. Don't accumulate too many horses. Don't accumulate too many wives and don't accumulate too much silver and gold. Now, keeping that in mind, I'd like for us to listen to another passage of Scripture. It's in 1 Kings chapter 4. And it's intended, I'm pretty sure, to be a positive description of the kingdom of King Solomon, the son of David, the last king of the, the united kingdom of north and south. After that, the kingdom divides into to a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. But let's listen to this description of Solomon's wealth and Solomon's success. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon was sovereign over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, even to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. 
Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of choice flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, all of them under their vines and fig trees. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, and 12,000 horsemen. Those officials supplied provisions for King Solomon, and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. They also brought to the required place barley and straw for the horses and swift steeds, each according to his charge. So, by a lot of estimations, we would count Solomon a successful king. He expands the kingdom. The economy is good. Uh, politics, good. Military, strong. Culture, high. Wisdom literature being produced. He has all this wealth. He has all this food. All that list of food. That was huge. But then a number of those things, if we read those texts side by side, are pretty suspicious that the a huge number of horses and chariots and horsemen that he has, all of that wealth that he has. And although it doesn't mention it there, we know from other passages that he also accumulated a lot of wives. An interesting part of that story is that of his 300 wives, one of them is listed and named as the daughter of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is like his father-in-law. And the way he's operating his kingdom, in a lot of ways, is more like Pharaoh than like the godly king described in Deuteronomy. Solomon is not following the narrative of the prophets so much as the narrative of Pharaoh. And if we applied to him that rubric that I mentioned earlier, how well does the organization do after you're done? Well, then... Solomon gets a big fat F. He fails. He inherits a singular kingdom from his father. And although he grew in a lot of ways and had a lot of success by worldly standards, he passes on to his descendants what quickly becomes a divided kingdom, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And they both will suffer Kind of horrific fates, one being destroyed by the Assyrians and the other by the Babylonians. So if that's the story of Pharaoh, then what would be the alternative story that we might hear throughout the scriptures? Well, Walter Brueggemann will call this the narrative of the prophets. And we can compare the prophets or contrast the prophets really to Pharaoh. And so we see this in a lot of places. Um, we, we see it in Abraham and Moses. We see it uh, a, a lot of explicit ways in Elijah and Elisha, as well as in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But their story is a different one. As opposed to the scarcity that, or the, excuse me, the anxiety that Pharaoh felt, the prophets tell us to trust God, that 
our, our primary experience should not be one of anxiousness, but of calm. We trust God to care for us. We trust God to provide. And when we live, as the prophets tell us, in a life of trust, it will lead us not towards this myth of scarcity, but towards the good news of abundance, that God has created a world that is incredibly productive, that our systems, our economic systems that we have in the world can create a a lot of wealth and a lot of stability. And so if we live within the gospel of abundance, as opposed to the myth of scarcity, instead of uh, leading us to produce monopolies like Pharaoh did, it will lead us to be generous, to to share our goods and services, to uh, distribute our commodities in ways that are are fair and life-giving and supportive. That life of generosity will lead to a community, a community of neighborliness, and that neighborliness, which David Dufkinson spoke to us a couple of weeks ago about, will lead us to the real goal of the prophets, which is shalom. It's peace, peace of the city. Isaiah has this vision of what things will look like, where we're no longer having to use our metal to create weapons, but our, our very weapons can be beaten into plows and hoes that we can change our weapons into farming utensils and that we can build houses and that we can grow gardens and that we can watch our children and our children and maybe even our children's children's children uh, grow. That's the vision that Isaiah has. There's lots of ways that this, uh, uh, stories that I could point to that be expressed. One quick one, it's in 2 Kings and the prophet at the time is Elisha. And I tell this story a lot because I love it, but uh, Elisha is surrounded by the Syrian army at Dothan, where he lived. That's the town he lived in. And his servant Gehazi goes out and sees the Syrian army. He's like, oh no, we're dead. But Elisha prays uh, multiple times. He prays that Gehazi can have eyes to see. And he sees this great army of angels, right? He sees abundance, not scarcity. And in another prayer, he prays, and the the Syrian army goes blind. And so in their time of need, he leads the Syrian army into Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And there, the king of Israel looks at Elisha, and he says, Father, Father, what should we do? Should I kill them? Should I kill them? Which is exactly what Pharaoh would say do, right? You kill your enemies, right? You might love your neighbor, but you don't love your enemy. That's ridiculous. But that's exactly not what Elisha says to do. He says, kill them. No, don't kill them. Feed them. And they feed that Syrian army. Elisha has prayed for a third time, and now they've received their sight, and they realize they're surrounded by the Israelites. But instead of getting killed, they get fed, and they go home. And it says for generations and generations, there was no longer any battles between the two. It's an amazing story. It's the story of a prophet, not the story of a pharaoh. And it's the story that I believe that 
Jesus is calling us to. Jesus becomes one of those who says, you've heard it say, love your neighbor. That's great. Do that. But I'm telling you, also love your enemy. Paul will say something similar in Romans. He says, pray for those who persecute you. And at another point, he tells us to feed those who have harmed us, just, just like Elisha. That's our story. And so the gospel passage for today is from Matthew 16. And it's a passage where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And it's a perfect way to kind of wrap up this lesson on following the leader. Because for us, this is more about followership than it is about leadership. And the one we are following is Jesus. And this is how the Jesus story ties in with this older story between Pharaoh and the prophets. Jesus takes his disciples from the Sea of Galilee, where they lived in a little village called Capernaum, and he walks them north, a long walk, a couple-day walk, up to Caesarea Philippi. Listen to the, just the title of that city, Caesarea, named for Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire, and Philippi, named for Philip, who was the local tetrarch. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great. So Jesus goes to this capital city. It's a capital city for that local region, and it's obviously paying homage to the larger capital in Rome. But it's also an ancient place of pagan worship. So at multiple levels, spiritual levels, political levels, economic levels, military levels, this is a hot spot, this city of Caesarea Philippi. And it's there that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? What, what are they saying about me? And what they say is, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets. Now, why in the world would people be associating Jesus with Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets? It's because he was doing things and saying things that were like the prophets. He was continuing this prophetic narrative, this narrative that runs counter to the narrative of Pharaoh. It's a different way of being in the world. It's a way that prioritizes people and realizes that our commodities are such that if we, if we manage them and, and are generous with them, there's enough to go around and that we don't have to be violent to one another. We can be at peace with one another. I mean, it is, it is a great story. I'd like to put on the screen for you here a couple of uh, spectrums. These are two alternative stories. One, again, the narrative of Pharaoh, and the other, the narrative of the prophets. We see that Pharaoh's narrative, again, starts with anxiety, which produces this kind of myth of scarcity, which leads them to the accumulation of everything they can accumulate, which, when unchecked, leads to a monopoly, so that Pharaoh owned it all, which, as monopolies often do, ended in violence, horrific violence for the Hebrews, because they spent 400 years in slavery. The alternative story, the story of, of the prophets, is not one of anxiety, but trust. Let us put our trust in God. And may our trust lead us to a belief in the good news of abundance, that the Lord has more than enough to go around. 
we pray, give us this day the daily bread. Give us, Lord, bread enough to share is a good way to interpret that. Because that's exactly where a gospel of abundance will lead us. It'll lead us not toward a life of monopoly, but it will lead us toward a life of generosity. And I pray that we can live like that, that we can live generous lives with our time, with our talents, and with our treasures. And that generosity will lead us to a place of community, of neighborliness. And what neighborliness can produce that monopoly can't is peace. The true goal of the prophet, shalom, the peace of the city. These are troubled times, my friends, and you don't need me to tell you that. Facing a global pandemic, the economy's kind of shaky, it's an election year, people are quick to criticize. This is not a time of peace, but it can be, and it should be. And it can start with you and me and us together as we follow Jesus. As Christians, we are first and foremost, not leaders, but followers, because we are following the leader who is Jesus. But like the childhood game, follow the leader, sometimes that involves following someone who's a little closer to us, maybe than Jesus. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I've thought about that passage so many times in my life. And I often pray, Lord, help me live a life where I can faithfully say to others, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christianity is a received faith. Obviously, we all have relationships with Jesus, with God, through the Spirit. But we often learn and grow from one another. I mean, I'm your pastor, and, and my goal is that I can teach, and I can lead, and I can be an example uh, for you. A, a flawed one, of course, but nevertheless, it's my goal. And I pray that you too might desire and strive to live a life that you might say to friends or family or your children, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That we can all play this kind of divine, kind of heavenly, uh, follow the leader game. But we do it here on earth. And I think we do it living a life following our leader, our ultimate example, who again, I believe, is telling us to trust, to, to live a more abundant life. It's exactly what he said he came for, to be generous, to be neighborly, and to be the peace that we need in our time. Whether it's on social media, whether it's in your families, whether it's in your workplace, uh, students, as you go back to your classrooms, whatever the case may be, you can be the peace in that context. You can be the alternative voice that doesn't allow us, despite the fact that we might have differences, and maybe even some differences that are 
that are viable, but they don't have to end in violence. They don't have to end in separation. We can work for the common good. And that common good is the coming of the kingdom of God and anticipating and expecting and working not just toward that end, but in a, in a ethical way, right? A way that mimics the way of Jesus, that mimics the way of the prophets before him with whom he was confused, right? So that's my hope. That's my prayer. We come to the table here in just a minute, and it is a practice of just that. It's a practice of laying down our differences, of, of sacrificing those things for the sake of fellowship. That maybe you might have uh, friends that are just of one political group or just of one, uh, you know, support just one athletic team or what have you. But when it comes to the faith, when it comes to the most important things in life, those things are tertiary, secondary at best. And we come in unity around the table, grateful for Jesus in hopes that we too might practice that, be instruments of peace. I'd like us to close with this prayer. It's a prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And it's one that we've said many times before, and I hope we say many times again, and I hope even this week, as you reflect on this sermon about following the leader and about being more like the prophets than like Pharaoh, that you might focus on this prayer and pray this prayer and pray that by the Spirit of God, you can live it. I love you all. Hope to see you soon. Let's say this prayer together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.